Welcome to Top of Mind with Concilio Wealth, a show about markets, investing, and financial planning. Join us as we cover current events that are in the news and answer top of mind questions from our listeners. This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. This audio may contain statements that may be deemed as forward-looking. Any such statements are not guarantees of future performance and actual results may differ from those projected. This podcast is not engaged in rendering legal, financial, tax, or other professional services. Welcome everyone to episode 37 of Top of Mind with Concilio Wealth. On today's episode, we are talking about a prosperity study from Intuit uh, that covers kind of like the reverse FIRE movement. If you're if you are familiar with that, the FIRE is an acronym that stands for Financial Independence Retire Early. They had an interesting study that came out that um, I guess kind of contradicts that right now with what young people are doing. Secondly, the National Association of Realtors was found guilty of price gouging. This is hot in the news. Um, We'll impact this. American economy is just rocking. Uh, Rocking in a good way. Uh, doing doing very, very well, job support strong, everything seems to be pretty good, which um, highlights this continued, I think I should update my my saying now, we are one month away from a recession for the last 20 months now, I think, how? Isn't that right? I think so, yeah. Economists uh, accurately predict 10 out of the last, no, 20 out of the last 10 recessions, I think that's right. And finally, Singles Day and what it means for the Chinese economy. All right, timestamp. It is 9.52 in the morning, Friday, October 17th. It's the week before Thanksgiving. Hope everyone has some great plans for next week. I'm taking next week off and um, preparing to have some family over to the house and have a good have a good time for Thanksgiving. What about you, Hal? What are you doing for Thanksgiving? I'm not taking it off. Um, <laughs> we're, my team's on a call that the black friday but it, again i wasn't gonna shop physically that day anyway but yeah we we have a nice week at home planned which is going to be awesome very good low-key is better very good i like that all right let's go to this prosperity study this is interesting you found this uh, in the news, or did you attend a webinar on this, or how did you find this? I found this uh, link through an art, I think through a seminar. Um, the The people who published it is Intuit. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the people behind TurboTax, I believe. Um, they were just studying 3,500 participants around the world, around the North American world, so Canada and U.S., um, around our world, I guess. And they just asked them what they thought about how they th- what they thought about finance in general and uh, i think one of the big things that came out was um as chris mentioned the the fire movement which is uh i forgot the fi again was retire early like, financial independence financial retire independence. early and i think there's been a big push especially from uh twitter based finance or personal finance and you got you know, you don't have to look hard to find plenty of people saying you, you save a million by the time you're 35, you can retire if you spend, you know, 20000 a year or something, right? Really frugal lifestyle. But the flip side is is you have, you don't have to work the rest of your life, right? And so 35 mm-hmm. is a really young age to retire. And what Intuit found is um, th- their servant survey responders were 
anti that. Uh, they wanted to save softly or not save at all. Um, I wrote an article about people spending their, their home savings, right, um, or the potential home savings for a new home purchase is suddenly out of reach in terms of being able to buy the house. I got $50,000 and mortgage rates are 8%. I, can't, I still can't afford to buy that house even with that down payment mm-hmm. because home prices haven't come down. So therefore, I'm going to spend it and enjoy life. And I mm. think, I think this is kind of related to that, where um, younger people aren't seeing where their savings are going, and they're kind of taking money out of the pockets of their future selves to enjoy life now. So that's yeah, that's uh, what I describe as anti-fire, but they call it soft saving in this report. And a couple of things that they <clears throat> they uncovered about the questions. Um, you know, the, the body positivity movement where people are like, Hey, I'm comfortable with my, my weight and my height, yada, yada. Mm-hmm. Um, they're asking for more personal finance transparency where, you know, you would typically see, uh, people driving around in Lamborghinis or Ferraris. And I did it because a side hustle, I earned a hundred thousand dollars a month on, high, you know, something really outlandish and ridiculous. And I think we, we see that pretty often just normally right in social media where oh we're going on a great vacation we're we just bought a brand new car mm-hmm. we're so rich we're doing really well mm-hmm. but what people in this report are really asking for is financial personal finance transparency just kind of open up the ugliness we have this much debt right this is how much we're paying on that debt uh, we bought this house we're not happy because the the roof needs to be repaired Mm-hmm. We've had to not only carry the mortgage debt, we've had to carry um, home equity debt or whatever the, the ugly side of some of this lavish spending comes about. I think that's an important side of the, the, the story, too, when you're looking at social media especially, right? I think people need to be, I don't know, discussing your finances is very special talent. And it, it's kind of like undoing years of habits of never talking about your salary, never talking about how much debt you have, right? Because it's always been taboo. Mm -hmm. And the financial transparency push, and again, it's not a push per se, but it's just, it would be nice to see some of these spenders really say how much they make. And how much debt they have. How much debt they have. That's interesting. Yeah, it's like, hey, look at this new flashy car. But now I have a $1,400 a month payment. Yeah. And it's a lease or something, right? Yeah, or whatever. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I, I think that's interesting. So the, the, the desire is not necessarily, I want to be flashy like them. It's a, can I be flashy like them? Like, do I have money like them? But if then that person, you know, showed their finances, then it would be up to the person on the other end of, say, the Instagram looking kind of in, in uh, you know, I guess judging the, this person that just bought the $1,400 a month car, you know, and saying like, yeah, they could have afforded that or they couldn't for comparison purposes. Yeah. Yeah. Like let's look at the reality component of uh, an expensive exotic car. Like, let's, let's not look at Lamborghini or Ferrari. We understand the maintenance costs, right? Or replacing the tires on those things must be 
a small fortune too. Pro- probably, yeah. Yeah. Like, what does the maintenance <laughs> look like on a Mercedes or a BMW? And mm-hmm. that's not an extreme case, but that's an expensive part of car ownership that people, especially young people, just don't really consider beyond you know beyond the the payments and the interest rates they're paying on it. So this this is, I just want to quote a couple of things here. So this is saying one in two. One in two say it makes. Let's see here. One in two say it makes them feel it. What is it? Here now I'm quoting out of turn. I think it's referring to when they see somebody else, you know, on Instagram Correct. or something yep. that's doing well. Yep. Okay, thank you. So, all right. So over one in two say it, and it is uh, like seeing somebody else on the other side of say Instagram. So yeah, one in yeah. two say it makes them feel like they're falling behind on their life goals when they see so many people around them who are succeeding so easily. And this is 73% of Gen Z respondents compared to only 55% of the general population who is is responding this way. And the second statistic here is one in two say that they feel less prosperous when they compare themselves to others. Again, 67% of Gen Z versus 58% of the general population. And lastly, the Gen Z, they're interested in exploring and learning about saving and investing, but the approach is much softer. Their objectives that says it's all about personal growth and mental well-being in the now, and they would rather feel more fulfilled now than save for a future that is unknown. I certainly can't knock that first point, mental well-being, personal growth, that type of stuff, but there is certainly a challenge in thinking if you don't see a future or see yourself in that future, therefore you aren't saving for that future. That's a scary reality, assuming Correct. that future becomes a reality and you're still around. Because what you lose is the thing you can't get back is time. Compound interest, yeah. yeah. And I think if you're your 50-year-old self, are you kicking your 20-year-old self in the pants for taking this exotic Greek trip that loaded, loaded your younger self up on debt that you had to climb out of? And I think that's the important thing is that if... If you can afford it, absolutely not. But if it's what uh, unseated sure, yeah. your, your retirement, yeah. your ability to, to have any sort of financial independence, you might be kicking yourself for, for not understanding the reality. So that's interesting that these, these kind of respondents are saying, I'd like to see the financials for these people that are so seemingly successful because maybe they're idiots, right? Or, yeah. or maybe, maybe they do have their stuff together. But or they, they give me bad advice, jobs. which is the most dangerous part of it, right? Because not advice, only are they yeah. impacting their own lives, but they're... they're obviously influencing what two thirds of young people to think differently about money. And that's bad. God, and how, how many of these people are paying for their Lamborghinis on the amount of money that they're making on their influencer Through, status yeah. yes. being on Instagram, which, you know, props to everybody who's out there as an influencer, you know, we're rapidly trying to become those too. Uh, but, but, you know, if you have no financial acumen or no, no job and your, your job is, posting uh dramatic things to drum up clicks yeah um that's not a fair comparison to somebody that's watching that who's trying to figure out their career path yeah yeah and dig, digging further into the study here um this is a bit of a conflicting right um the question was i've lied before about how much money i make more than half of the gen z population said yes <laughs> And I've, if I were asked about how much debt I have, uh, about nearly sixty percent wouldn't tell the tell, tell the truth about the amount of debt they carry. I make so, more, and I have less debt. 
that's what yeah, that's and, the deal <laughs> and that goes completely counter to transparency but it might be more social pressure to not be so upfront about your financials because i again i said it was it is taboo at least here in the states where talking about our salaries and how much debt we have is so personal and i totally get that but yeah. to ask for transparency and then that they themselves are lying and again it's not like a life-threatening lie but it's it's lying about you know what you said earlier about trying to be transparent and i, I think that's again being more transparent about things can help uh some of the social pressures but i i don't think it really changes the behaviors because I'm, I'm willing to bet some of the people who cashed in their um, home savings never seen a TikTok. They just wanted to get out and go to Greece and spend, you know, 10000 of that, 50000 yeah. which is a huge chunk. Let's talk quickly here on this, this net worth by planning status chart that you have here in the deck. Yeah, so this is uh, kind of related, but this um, Yale professor, James Choi, who is... Uh, Actually, Yale's personal finance guru. Hmm. So he, Dr. Choi does uh, does uh, teaching specifically on personal finance, and and I believe he was is a proponent of saving later in your life because as you earn more, economically speaking, if you could afford to save more, you do save more later in life versus younger in life. So um, if I'm you know 20 years old, I can only save 100 dollars a month. That doesn't economically move the needle too much mm, right I compounding see. helps but the amount of savings like i think his argument is the savings rate or the savings amount matters more than compounding which that's from an economic point of view but i think a couple things there is when you're starting young you're developing better habits when you're saving young right saving a bigger portion. i'll save when i make more money yeah don't worry yeah i the can next just flip race, the switch i'll right? save yeah. And I think that's a problem with economists where they, they don't really consider human behavior. Mm. And I totally get that they can't because they're trying to measure millions of people, hundreds of millions of people, financial decisions, right? Mm -hmm. But I think he makes, he he does a study, he has, has a study where he looked into, uh, no, he quotes a study that he, that measures uh, net worth by age 50. And there's four categories, right? People with no plan. Uh, the second one would be tried to figure out how much to save. Just, just napkin math, right? Mm -hmm. How much do I need to retire? Um, a formal developed plan is the third category, and able to stick to the plan is the fourth. Mm -hmm. And the net worth jumps pretty significantly from steps one to two. So, uh, age fifty, people with no plan, their net worth is one hundred twenty-two thousand. If they even put something on paper and and plan something, that net worth on average jumps up to three hundred seven thousand. It's like two and a half x. Yeah, and you think Napkin about how simple powerful. that is. Yeah, yeah. And then the next one, I think this is where uh, professionals start to come into the picture to help kind of take the plan to the the finish line. Yeah. So the developed plan is is kind of what we do, right? We we look at expenses, we look at spending, we look at income and future income. Uh, 370,000 uh, net worth at age 50 if you have a developed plan. I'm oh, assuming that's formal. Maybe another 20% increase or so? Yeah. And then 
the ability to stick to the plan, $410,000 net worth on average. Again, they're using averages, so some people might be really, really successful. But the, I think the study's eye-opening about it's like just starting 12, a plan. 10, and 12% increase. Yeah. Wow. yeah. And by age 50, you have maybe 15 working years left if you're lucky. Mm-hmm. And if you're not planned or at least develop some kind of a backup of a napkin plan by then, it's... It, it makes a huge difference. Yeah. I mean, the yeah. difference between the no plan and the able to stick the plan, I mean, it's three and a half X, which is the difference between actually retiring or, or, or yeah. having some semblance of financial security and not. Wow. Yeah, and I think that's why the soft saving plan could be pretty dangerous for the rest of your decades, right? Because it's setting up pretty early on bad spending habits. Mm-hmm. Wow. Interesting. Let's shift gears. Let's talk about the National Association of Realtors. This lawsuit, uh, in my opinion, actually was was settled, uh, settled, but but was determined pretty quickly. Um, yeah. Yeah. There was a suit one week and all of a sudden, like the next week or the week after that, boom. Yep. Guilty. Yeah. Guilty. Yes. Yeah. Like, wow. That was fast. <laughs> What happened here? And I guess what's on the docket? What might change for real estate and real estate commissions moving forward? <laughs> um, the seller pays a um, uh, real estate agent commission on both the seller's agent and the buyer's agent. So Seller pays all. Yeah, seller pays all. <clears throat> and the the fee goes split down the middle, 3% to the, on average, right? 3 3% to the buyer's agent and 3% to the seller's agent, right? But, it's a big cost. Yeah, it's a big yeah. cost to transact a big asset. Yeah. So uh, what the Missouri, I don't know, court found was that's an illegal practice, and it kind of opened up this this can of worms about, well, have home prices gone up as a result of that high fee? Because sellers will determine the price, right? So I think the regulation here is proposing that buyers pay the buyer's commission. So it's proposing that rather than seller pay all, I I suppose the lawsuit said the seller pay all um, creates this potential conflict between the listing agent and the buying agent because both want a higher price. Um, And so they were proposing to split how those commissions are paid, which means that the the buyer would actually have to pay the commission for their buyer's agent, and then the listing agent would be paid by the seller. And there's certainly some 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 folks against that because it would suggest that, well, now buying a house becomes more challenging because the buyer has to pay the commission out of pocket. And what if the buyer doesn't have that, right? So we need to incent buyers to buy homes, and whoever's selling the home needs to cover all those all those commissions. Yeah. And on the other side of it, the the thought process is by splitting those commissions and splitting who's paying those commissions, it should create a more competitive landscape that everybody's fighting for the right things um, instead of potentially running up the home prices. So uh, I believe part of this lawsuit it was it was found that this model, um, you know, potentially inflated uh, uh, home prices, so prices over yep. time. 
Um, and then there was a, a, a verdict that in a number of states, it was, I mean, it was billions of dollars um, that was deemed to be owed back to sellers due to inflated home prices, which are inflating commissions um, across a, a number of states that filed this suit. So this is interesting to see how this unfolds across the nation, uh, maybe even next year, if buyers will be required to pay commissions uh, or rather if sellers won't be required to pay all. Um, I think that could be an interesting sort of conundrum. And then of course, are you paying cash for that commission or are you able to throw that into your loan and finance it? Or, you know, what's yeah. the regulation on all that too? One constraint too is the MLS system. So the mm -hmm. multiple listing service is if you don't agree to this, this seller commission concession deal, your house won't get listed on the MLS site, which is used by the real estate agents, right? Right. And that includes, was it Redfin or Zillow that we talked talked Redfin about? Redfin just exited the MLS. Yes. Um, like, do you really they, need that, right? You, I mean, it's it's where you list a home, right? It's yeah. it's 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 a marketplace. Yeah, it is the marketplace. Yeah, there's no other place to go and find. Um, I mean, I Redfin surf more than I I surf social media. You know, it's just it's fun. It's fun to do. <laughs> um, and and so I mean, if you're not listing on the MLS, which is where Redfin and even Zillow pulls from, you're not going to find your house. Um, or you're not going to find a, a bigger pool of buyers. Not going to find that, a bigger yeah. pool of buyers. Yeah. So I, I think it's actually very interesting that Redfin pulled out. They said that they charge exorbitant fees and and you know they wanted to to distance distance themselves from it. I think it's a mistake on Redfin's part myself because you have to be a part of the only marketplace. But I'm not seeing what they're seeing. I'm just an outsider that happens to like the Redfin app and uses it to surf. Yeah. <clears throat> Um, let's move on. I want to throw one thing in here. That's kind of funny. It ties back into our last two podcasts. We've been talking about high yield savings accounts and CDs. So I got an email from Amex. Um, uh, we talked a lot about the Amex CD rates, right? Last time and how it's a really wonky thing. And then, uh, on the last podcast, I quoted a credit union thing that I got in the mail, um, from Giza credit union. And, uh, it had also really weird CD rates, like, you know, two year was a fraction of a percent, but one year was like 5%, something like that. Okay, so I got an email and it says, hey, um, you're, a, you're a platinum card member, so we're gonna give you a better high yield savings account rate of 4.55%. If you just Google high yield savings account at Amex, it's only 4.3%. So they're incenting now for <laughs> cross selling, basis. right? Yeah. Um, and forever, Marcus, which is a Goldman Sachs product, has always been just a little bit above the Amex product. I think they price that uh, on purpose to try to try to draw business, and and I th that you know I think that probably works. Well, now they're giving a bump um, in a in a way to try to cross sell. You know their their current card members. I just think it's interesting. Um, I continue to come back to this. These you know card companies need the deposits to guarantee the loans because they're loaning out on credit cards and credit sure. cards maybe aren't getting paid. That continues to not be uh, proven yet. Uh, it seems like credit cards are are climbing in terms of debt balances, but on a normal basis, it's like it's not like it's spiking. It's not like consumers are spending on credit. Um, it seems like actually things are pretty normal. But anyway, it's just kind of a conundrum that your credit card companies. Um, and your personal loan companies are the best places to put a high yield savings account, it seems like, versus you go to your big bank or even your small credit union or something, 
and it's laughable the rate that they're giving you. Yeah, yeah, like they're they're essentially stealing from. from they you essentially know, don't you, want yeah. your money. Like, don't put your money here. We don't want yeah. it. Yeah. But the the conundrum is that's where the safe money should be, and right. they know that they they're not willing to pay up for it. Um. I want to just talk briefly about the American economy. I think you had some some thoughts here on just jobs report and what the Fed's saying, and and just give us a quick update. We commented in the beginning, you know, the economy is just chugging along. Um, give us a quick update on that. Yeah, I know. I, when when you hear me or Chris say, "Hey, the economy's great," the the country is doing great economically. Um, I I know a bunch of people want to slap us and say, "Hey, go to the grocery store, look at the gas station pump." Um, Things aren't going great, and prices we, are high, right? That's yeah, what you're referring to. Yeah, prices are high. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I think that's showing up. Not think I know that's showing up in the consumer confidence report. Um, it dipped again, and it's oh. still at. You know, again, it's not at the lows of uh, last June, twenty twenty two, when it did bottom. Um, but it's 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 lower, right? Things aren't improving in the minds of the U.S. consumer. And I think that has to do with uh, the combination of high rates not having their effect, right? And then high prices. The high rates, the expectation brings down high prices, but the the Fed has no interest in lowering prices, right? That's deflation. And that's actually pretty bad for an economy. But again, you could argue that deflating highly inflated prices in such a short period of time might be just normalizing, meaning... Those prices went went too high too fast. They need to come down and deflate, and hmm. that's what I think. That's what the biggest concern is. In the Wall Street is definitely celebrating um, lower inflation, and we could care we Wall Street could care less about price level, hmm. right? And that's mm-hmm. what the distinction between Wall Street and the real economy is. Is the real economy is really concerned about price level, which is Obviously, the price the price of steak last year is more than mm-hmm. doubled, just because it came down two percent. That steak from, you know, last year is still ninety eight percent more expensive. I bought a turkey last night. I'm pretty sure the turkey was at least a dollar more per pound this oh, really? year than last year. Oh, I saw articles that uh, Thanksgiving would be ten percent cheaper this year. Oh year. man! <laughs> so you're shopping Maybe I bought at the too wrong early. Places. Yeah. I was going to text my family and say, hey, we're doing Thanksgiving on Friday. I'm buying the turkey on Friday. We're gonna yeah, you're buying the sale turkeys. Yeah, I'm buying the sale turkey. The unloved, ugly, ugly uh, turkeys. That yep, whatever one's left, that's what we're going to yeah. eat Friday night. That's not a bad <laughs> idea. I know. I know my wife's listening. To, I always complain about dry turkey. I hate dry, dry meats. Yeah, she, she always gives me hell for it because... She's the one making the turkey. So, again, I, I love you, Lauren. It's just I, I can't stand dry, dry meat. I've experimented with a number of things over the years. Uh, I've done a, a wet brine where you literally put the turkey yeah. in a five-gallon yeah. bucket. You know, we did that, yeah. Basically salt water, right? I think that works pretty well. The last two years, well, I guess last year and then this year, I'm doing it again. I'm doing a dry brine, which, of course, is just a, a you know, salt, basically salt rub on there with some herbs and stuff. I think it's great. I think that's the key to not making dry turkey. And then, of course, all the resting and everything like that. But yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm a proponent for that. I think that, um, yeah, I think yes. it's, yeah. Anyway. Well, sorry, then going back to the how the real world 
isn't the the stock market. The stock market's forward-looking. It's celebrating the fact that there's a downward trend in inflation, but then that the danger is deflation. We'll get to China, who's actually their their economy's deflating and prices are deflating. They'll shift and there. Yeah, I think <clears throat> lower prices is pretty bad for an economy. Uh, the last time we had significant deflation was the Great Depression, and we don't want to get back to that era. We do not want to get back to um, the fact that people are pouring milk in the streets because they're, the farmers are not getting the price they want. But the marketplace is saying, oh, I'm only willing to pay a dollar for a gallon of milk, farmer. And the farmer's like, well, it cost me $2 to produce this gallon of milk. Right. Right. So we're, we're better it. off dumping it than selling it to you. Um, who's, you know, someone who's unable to pay $2 a gallon for obviously economic reasons in 1930 but i think that's what what i know what that's what china's going through right now is deflating prices and i I think we're living through a real life experiment about what really deflation looks like and and by the way it makes sense that wall street is cheering inflation coming down not necessarily deflation because that just means that the the rate of increase of prices isn't going up as fast, therefore wages Correct. can catch up with those prices, and so over time things feel cheaper. Uh, yeah, I think that yeah. it would be great if prices of you know turkey and other things come down a little bit, but um, but and, and I've seen some of that at the store with sales. I think eggs went sure. down by like fifty cents. The eggs I, I tend to buy, so I've seen a little bit of it. Cauliflower's coming down. <laughs> Talk about that for a year. Eggs, eggs are cra- crashed down twenty five percent. Yeah, yeah, and uh, these these things never make any sense to me, right? It's like you see the prices go up, uh, and you hear about the articles, and then and then you tell me something like this: egg prices are down twenty five percent, not down twenty five percent at the store. Yeah, you know, up like a rocket, down like a feather. <laughs> that's for sure. Yeah, yeah, I know gas prices crashed, and here we are seeing four dollars a gallon again. But yeah, they were they were hovering around six dollars for a long time, and crazy producers are. Very fast to up, up their prices, but very slow to bring it back down. All right, so let's uh, let's end with China. So you're commenting on their economy and just their unemployment, and then also Singles Day. Um, yeah, there's know, let's like talk about this. Their version of Amazon Prime Day. Uh, China doesn't really have a lot of um, original thought. They just typically steal from American <laughs> American ideas, and Singles Days is like Prime Day, um, and that's a big Commerce Day. And I think they. The fact that they extended it by months, so it's like a single stretch now, that started in October, mm. is pretty bad sign that they have an inventory issue like we do. Because mm. uh, you don't have to look hard that here in the states that we have uh, early Black Friday deals already starting. That's, that's because there's an inventory issue, and that stuff, you know, as we mentioned time and time again, that stuff costs a lot to store, and you need yeah. to get it out of those warehouses or those stores because um, Wall Street punishes. Over inventory issues, like Target's last earnings, lots mm-hmm. of inventory issues, and I I don't care what they say about theft or anything, they have an inventory management problem, and I think that's the biggest thing about uh, launching early sale fest- festivities like China is and like we are, um, it, it creates deflation in a lot of areas, mm-hmm. but th- there there's a so widespread it's impacting their um, food prices, it's impacting. Um, goods prices and services prices. And that's probably probably because their government has locked down the population for so long. And on top of uh, such a bad real estate 
situation that they're living through that they need to climb out of as well. So it's mm-hmm. it's it's pretty it's a lot of things creating this perfect storm for China, which again uh, we we think of it as a real life experiment. I you know hate to be so callous, but we we will have real insight of what deflation looks like. This is so interesting too because I, I think that China quite possibly did the best at emerging the middle class. Right? They they built their middle class, they sure. gave them jobs, and their middle class was rising faster than any middle class, I believe, across the world. And they were kind of coming into their own in terms of spending and, and, and you know, spending on more luxury items and services and things like that. And they did a fantastic job. Now that seemed to has has sort of pivoted. Um, I just want to read a couple of things here. So this says youth unemployment hit a historic rate in China of 21.3%. This is in June of this year. Uh, the government used to not release that data, and now they're releasing that data. Wage growth has also stagnated, reducing the average disposable income. Also, many, many Chinese households have a ton of wealth tied up in real estate. So about 70% of Chinese household wealth is tied up in real estate, which it remains to be seen uh, You know what that's going to do. But uh, likely because the the real estate market is so saturated and saturated, um, you know, none of that stuff can be sold. It'll take a lot of time before consumer confidence comes back. And of course, we know that consumer confidence plays a role in spending and spending is what powers economies. So there's a conundrum over here for sure. I think it'd be interesting to see what happens and how they potentially pull out of it. All right. Well, uh, that's it for today's episode. Uh, everyone listening, have a wonderful Thanksgiving. Hope you Happy have some time with your families. And uh, we will catch you again in two weeks. Oh, geez. What's Gen Z? Gen Y, Gen X, uh, baby boomers. We're going to have to cut that out because I just look like a dumbass. So we'll <laughs> cut that out, but that's okay.